0: Italian wine podcast. Chinchin chin with Italian wine people. This podcast is brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey. Native Grape Odyssey is an educational project financed by the European Union to promote European wine in Canada, Japan, and Russia. Enjoy. It's from Europe.
1: Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Ward. my guest today is Tom Matthews, who is executive editor at The Wine Spectator. Uh, Your tasting beat, as they call it, is mainly Spain. Uh, You've been with The Spectator since 1987, when I was four years old. Don't rub it in. Yeah, And you were a freelancer living in Bordeaux. You were hired full-time by the magazine in 1988, and you first served in the London office, and then you were reassigned to New York. Which state are you from in the States, first of all?
0: Well, I was born in Michigan, but didn't live there very long. I consider myself a New Yorker. I've been there since 1982.
1: Okay, so tell me how you ended up in Bordeaux as a young kid, or a young young man, I should say. I'll try to make this a shorter story. You can make it long. In
0: 1979, I was living in Spain, writing a novel, and ran out of money. And a friend said, let's go to Bordeaux and pick grapes. And I said, why would we do that? He said, well, The food is great, they give you all the wine you want to drink, and the work is easy. I said, sign me up. So up we went, and a few weeks later, I realized he was right on two out of three. Work was not easy.
1: So where were you you picking grapes then?
0: In a small family farm in entre de nothing special, but I fell in love with the whole culture of wine, the people, the place, the history, the flavors, and I decided I'm going to orient my writing more towards wine. And uh, after a few years tending bar and trying to be an importer and trying to write, I moved back to France, again to a small village in Entre de Mer to research a book about the life of wine there.
1: So, whereabouts were you in Entre de no, I No, my, my journey into wine was exactly the same as yours. I was at school. I ended up in Entre de Mer in Bordeaux, a small family estate picking grapes.
0: It's a beautiful region and great people. This was a small village called Ruche. Uh, In between Castillon and Liborne, they had a cooperative. We sort of embedded ourselves in the community. And I eventually did publish the book called A Village in the Vineyards, 1993. But in the meantime, I was freelancing and Wine Spectator took a chance on me. And then I took a chance on them and it's all worked out.
1: So that was in which year, sorry?
0: 1987, freelancing, 88 full-time.
1: So you obviously had the advantage of of being multilingual. Yes. And where did you get your writing skills from? Were Were you a good kid in school? Yes, I mean, a SWAT egghead? Mm, yes. But a popular egghead? Yes. <laughs> I
0: had it all, what can I say? And I threw it all away to go be a grape picker in Bordeaux.
1: So when you think, oh, you join the Wine Spectator... Um, everyone's going to think, oh, you know, glamorous life. Uh, but in those days, I imagine it's very different to what it is now in terms of the interest in wine. How have things changed for you in terms of, in terms of uh, the wine spectator, in terms of size or in terms of editorial content and also your role within it?
0: Well, I was very fortunate because the late 70s, early 80s was a pivotal time for wine in American culture. It really sort of embedded itself and took off, and the Wine Spectator was there all the way. When I joined, it was only 10 years old. It had a circulation of less than 100,000. It was still on newsprint. And uh, Marvin Shankin, the owner, editor, publisher, had a vision that it could be a lot more than that. And through dint of hard work and some good hires, uh, we rode the wine wave. uh, And by 1989, I was back in New York working for Marvin in the head office and in 1993 we turned it into a glossy lifestyle magazine, the one that you see today, and now we have 400,000 Subscribers and a reach of 3 million people around the world.
1: So, I was working in London that time and we would stop the Wine Spectator, and I would always see two things in that. I mean, obviously, I saw you, uh, but I, look, I would look, I'm into photography. I know you are as well, your wife. So, we would see Sarah, photo by Sarah Matthews. Now, who is Sarah Matthews?
0: So, in, after the grape harvest in 1979, I went back in 1980 and was crashing with a friend in Paris, and he was invited to a birthday party. So I tagged along, and that was the 21st birthday party of Sarah Williams. And I was love at first sight for me. I pursued her. Uh, ultimately, she agreed. And she had a very successful career as an architect and interior designer in New York and gave it up to move to France with me and begin a career as a photographer. And she's today in Argentina finishing up a two-week shoot. Down there, she's made a great career as a wine photographer.
1: And she also does films as well, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, two media, you know, journalists, photography, they are two very precarious, potentially precarious existences. What I liked about The Spectator as well was the fact that you did have lavish but beautifully done photography. And um, it's not just saying the kind of lifestyle thing, but it just, it's nice to look at. It gives you a much better feel often of the place rather than having these really not great photos. How important do you think imagery is, was in those early days? Well, thank
0: you, Monty, first of all, because we put a lot of energy and money into the photography yeah, and the you can magazine. you see that.
1: It's obvious. It doesn't uh, happen by chance. And,
0: and we, because wine regions are beautiful, extremely beautiful, and vineyards have their exposures, their angles, their shadows, their sunlight, and the people of wine are so photogenic because they all have great character, and you can read that character in their faces. So, to communicate the story of wine you have to use pictures as well as words
1: so is sarah great at getting up in the morning there's this photography term called the magic hour when the light is absolutely perfect early morning is she the early riser whilst you're just lounging in bed
0: you must have read her mind or heard her pitch because she's got those vintners up at crack of dawn every day okay we can't even travel together because our needs are so incompatible
1: no i don't believe that you still would you're not like separate hotel rooms we we
0: just don't go on the same trips Sarah really? does her trips and I do mine.
1: Well, that's just so that's but well, that's professional reasons, though, isn't it? That's not because yes. you don't get on. Yeah. No. So, who's the best cook in the house?
0: Um, her mother. The- her mother Nancy is ninety years old. Lives with us in Brooklyn. She retired from her career as a museum curator in Atlanta and moved up twenty years ago. And she is a fantastic cook.
1: So let's talk about the Italian market in the United States. What's happening? It's it's
0: bubbling over. Um, I think. Italy has always been the leader in volume and remains so, and uh, the value also is growing. I think Americans are into discovery; they're curious, they want to try new things, and Italy is an endless source of new things for us.
1: So, I mean, in terms of uh, trends, I mean, is there that trend to native varieties, or is it just Italian wine in general? Or and are there any particular regions that you think have potential to develop?
0: Well, we did a survey of about fifteen hundred of our. Uh, readers through our website, winespectator.com, and we presented the findings at the at Opera Wine yesterday. And really, I would say there's there are two or three different markets for Italian wine. There's the Prosecco Market, which is for people that maybe don't even know that it comes from Italy but love the flavor. There's the Brunello and Barolo Market, which is the collectors, the people who are willing to spend $50 and looking for quality. And then there's the discovery market, the people exploring Sicily or Sardinia or Puglia or Veneto or Trentino. So th- Italy really can cover all the bases.
1: How does Italian wine influence directly or indirectly the styling of American wines or, say, Californian wines, in terms of mm-hmm. acidity or tannin? Or?
0: now, I would say that Americans really are still pretty much following the French model, both in grape varieties and
1: wine style. Do you think that's an error or do you think that's just going to continue or what what do you think might happen there?
0: That's a good question, Monty. I mean, the efforts with italian grape varieties have not really worked that well in terms of style and quality in california at least
1: mm-hmm. so apart from like say, so the old timers up in mendocino with zinn and things like that i guess you could call
0: zinn an italian variety although i don't think it has oh is actually know it isn't pro- because, oh, 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 get, italian yeah. v- identity it has a really american identity
1: okay that's best.
0: better for italy because you know they're not we're not going to plant sangiovese and stop drinking chianti we're going to continue to drink chianti because that's the best sangiovese
1: okay so in terms of the wine itself obviously there's print journalism and there's the e-form the electronic form what are we going to expect from the wine spectator in the future well in about a month you're going to see a whole new winespectator.com we've spent the last
0: six months rebuilding revamping redesigning the website to make it easier to use and more interesting and more engaging and i think it's going to be a big hit i mean we like to say that if you took circulation as your model, paid circulation. Wine Spectator is by far the number one wine publication and winespectator.com is number two.
1: Right. So how would that work? Would there be some free content to hook people in and then a subscription?
0: Yes. The free content is most of it, really most of the stories, the news
1: and uh, profiles and such. And then the pay is for the ratings. Right, okay. Now you talk about stories and storytelling. Um, how is that developing, and what, do, what is your sort of angle with the, with the storytelling, the human aspect behind the wine? Well, we have a
0: weekly column called Unfiltered, which is kind of millennial-focused. It looks at pop culture and how wine and spirits have infiltrated the celebrities and the, the youngsters. We also have a contributor named Robert Camuto, who lives here in uh, Verona, who has a column called Going Native in Europe. And he goes to the little off-the-beaten-path places in Italy and France, mostly, and Spain, and brings back these beautiful stories of emerging vintners.
1: So in terms of emerging trends, we can probably say it's a sort of maturing trend is, whatever we want to call it, natural wine, biodynamic, organics. How do you see that developing in terms of in the field and also in terms of your readership and your coverage of that?
0: Well, we strongly support environmental sustainability on the part of the wine producers, and and in our blind tastings, organic and, yes, biodynamic wines tend to score very well. As far as the ideology of it and the sort of militant uh, partisanship that comes along, we don't
1: go with that. Yeah, I don't go with that either. I, mean, you might, I know you, you, know, I'm into my organics and biodynamics, but for me it's a tool, um, and good viticulture is good viticulture. I think, you know, with your own personal experience of having worked in vineyards, I think it's probably informed you a lot as well into all the hard work that goes into it and the possible mistakes that you can make and the effect that that does have on wine styling and wine quality. And
0: you know, Monty, we judge our wines in blind tastings. So we don't know the producer, we don't know the price. We also don't know if it's organic or biodynamic. So we can't give pluses or minuses for any of those things. We just judge the quality in the bottle. And we think that counts more
1: than the ideology. Final question. You got a huge responsibility on your shoulders. How do you switch off? What do you do to switch off? Can you switch off? I don't want to switch relaxed. off. I,
0: I like what I do. My life, my work is my life. I, I'm so blessed to be part of this world of wine and all the people that work so hard to make it what it is. I this is this is my home.
1: What about Sarah? Can she switch off quite easily?
0: Yes, she she's a gardener. She's a She's got a hinterland. She's she's got a much richer internal life than I do.
1: I think you're underestimating yourself. I'm sure you're being very modest there. So I want to say thanks to my guest today, Thomas Matthews, Executive Editor at The Wine Spectator. It's been lovely talking to you and um, wish you every success with the online version and uh, keep up the lovely photos. And please send my compliments to Sarah. Thank you very much. I'd love to do it for I'd love to meet... Sarah, your wife, and, and talk just talk photography. I'm a bit of a geek uh, about that, so I'm sure I get some tips from her. Thank you so really much. Really nice. Thanks a lot. It's great, lovely interview. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey, discovering the true essence of high quality wine from Europe. Find out more on NativeGrapeOdyssey.eu. Enjoy, it's from Europe. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.